We like rags to riches stories, don't we? Um, we like this idea of a guy who has nothing, who hits it big, um, who all of a sudden his name is known. And can you believe he grew up with nothing, no opportunity? Uh, he had everything against him, and yet he overcame. What we like a lot less is the kind of story we're going to talk about today. And today's story is more of what we would call a riches to rags story. Last week, if you were with us, um, I kind of gave a heads up this was coming. We've been spending a number of weeks talking about a man by the name of David. David was one that was a shepherd boy. Um, he, was, he was not wealthy. He was not the oldest of his family. He had nothing that others would look and say, David ought to be successful. And yet God chose David to be the king of Israel. And so as he grew and as he matured, God used him in some really significant ways. If you're familiar with none of David's story, you may be aware of David and Goliath. This man who was a great warrior that God put David against and sent him to. And David goes out and defeats Goliath as just a young boy, a teenager most likely, fighting against this grizzled vet and wins through the power of God. So an incredible thing that's happened in David's life. And now as we come to the story today, he's risen through the ranks and he's become the king just like he was anointed and promised years before, about 20 years in the making. So now as David is the king, he has rest from his enemies in many ways. The, the nation of Israel has conquered and seen conquests. But now as we come together, we're going to continue to see um, that David's trajectory is not always up and to the right. In fact, we've begun what we might even call David's decline. And as we begin to walk through this, uh, I want to give a little bit of insight. Here's what we're going to do today. Um, it's going to be a little bit different um, of a sermon just because of the text we're in. I'm going to talk about what we're going to see. We're going to see it. And then we're going to apply these things to our own lives this morning. Um, like many um, millennial theologians and pastors, my theology was heavily shaped by Veggie Tales. Anyone familiar with Veggie Tales? Um, my parents are actually in the room, and my dad looks mortified right now. Um, he is just thoroughly embarrassed that I just said that from the pulpit. Um, what we have, though, eventually tells us this fascinating. The 90s were a weird time. Can we all just admit that? Uh, this group of, if you're not familiar with it, literally anthropomorphized vegetables that teach Bible stories and lessons. I mean, literally, that's what it was. And so um, growing up, there was the, the vegetables. There's one of them that just in my mind, for whatever reason, just stuck with me. Um, and it was uh, one of the adventures of Larry Boy. If you, know, if you don't know Larry Boy, Superman, Spider-Man, they got nothing on Larry Boy. Okay, cucumber superhero um, that fought against in this greatest adventure, my opinion, the fib. And in this story, it's, it's told in this really cute way, but the principle, I, I am, here I am decades later telling you about it, the principle stood out to me. This uh, young asparagus, I almost said boy, but anyways, he tells a lie to get out of trouble with his parents. And all of a sudden, this fib appears this physical embodiment of his lie. But then, as we all have come to understand in our lifetimes, that lie doesn't stop with one lie. A lie compounds. 
And that deception has to increase. And so what happens over time is this fib that begins, just this little pet sin that's just here in between us, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And it wreaks havoc because it has been allowed to fester and increase. You say, well, that's a silly story, and that's a, and it is, it is. But what we're going to find today is that David lived through and endured the consequences of sin in a very real way. You see, the book of James, chapter number one, lays out for us the compounding complexity of our sin. James says this in chapter one, he says that our desire, the things that we want inside of us, it grows and it expounds and expands and it, and it moves towards sin. And that sin, as it continues and it grows, it leads to death. And that's what we're going to see plainly laid out in David's life. So now that we know where we're going, going, let's begin walking through it together. Chapter number 11, verse number 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle. And so the author here is kind of setting us up, helping us understand the time and the context. So this isn't like battle to defend our land. This is expansion time. You want to expand the kingdom? Um, Well, we're going to begin in the spring and the fall. It's too cold in the winter, too hot in the summer. Spring and fall are the great times for that. And so when kings would often go out to battle, where do we find David? David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And so they're making headway. They're doing their jobs. But David remained at Jerusalem. On a normal day or a normal situation, this may not be something that was observed, but the author wants us to see that something is happening here. And watch what begins to take place. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This story begins with David the king, not on the battlefield, but on the couch. Not doing what God had called him to do, but allowing others to carry out the things that he was supposed to be doing. We find David here uh, allowing himself to be the armchair quarterback king in this season. Instead of going out and doing the thing he was meant to do, he had allowed someone else to step in, and he had uh, stepped away from his responsibilities and duties. But what we're seeing really at the beginning of this is we see David, as he goes out onto this rooftop, he looks and he glances and he sees this woman, Bathsheba. And in that moment, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more, but in that moment, David had a choice to make. If he would continue to look, if he would move towards sin, or if he would put an end to it right then and there. As we begin our time together today, I want you to hear this, remember this, understand this today. John Owen writes, and he says this, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. 
Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. None of us are invulnerable to the tactics of the enemy. None of us have been around long enough, we are seasoned enough, we are experienced enough, that we are immune to the devil's traps. You won't find the person. David now has lived a successful life. He has had so many things that have gone right and gone well. He was David. He was the man. He was the guy. Who was David? I mean, he was the champion of champions within Israel, the greatest man in this, this time of Israel's history. And yet now he falls into temptation and he allows this sin to take root within himself. Listen to me. Listen to me, Christians. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. You do not have the ability to sit idly by and allow sin to hollow you out. It may take days or weeks or months or even years before everyone else sees because it's just eroding you from the inside. But now we see David allowing himself to fall into this temptation and there will be great consequences from him. As he's looking out, what happens in verse number two? We see David, he gets up from his couch. He's walking on the roof of the king's house. And so the king's house, as you can imagine here, um, this is just outside of Jerusalem. It's in an area known as the city of David. And so this is uh, where David would have lived. Jerusalem is a mountainous city. And so the king would have been closer to the city itself. Um, and so his house, probably both taller than and higher in elevation than the houses of all of his men and his uh, fellow soldiers who are surrounding it. As he is up here on this roof, what do we see? From the roof, he sees a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And so he gets up and he, he sees, he's beginning to look out and he sees this woman. Verse 3, David says, and inquired about the woman. So he calls in one of his servants and he says, hey, who is that? And one said, watch this, watch this here. David's warned here. Watch what they're doing. Hey, isn't that uh, Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah? The Hittite? You know, Eliam and Uriah, you and I may not know Eliam and Uriah, but David would have. Because you see, Eliam is listed as one of David's, what the Bible calls his mighty men. These were David's closest soldiers, his confidants, his special forces, if you will. And this is Eliam's daughter. Not only that, but the granddaughter of a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is one of David's inner circle counselors. And so there's this woman that he sees now, and this is Eliam's daughter, Ahithophel's granddaughter, and Uriah's wife, Uriah being another one of David's best soldiers. And so this isn't even, as if it's bad enough, this isn't even a stranger. This is someone she knows, he knows her family, he knows her husband, he knows all of these things. And what we're seeing here is just this amazing inability for David to tell himself no. Because now as he sends, he begins to ask questions and someone goes, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's this person. As if they weren't off limits already, they are way more off limits. And as we go into this, um, I want to make sure that as we study this today, there's a lot of different conjecture and ideas and thoughts about this text. 
I don't want to get into those weeds. I want to stick to the point of this passage. And so I want to be careful with certain topics in this. Um, I want to make sure that we're staying focused on what's taking place because the author leaves some things pretty unclear about this interaction. Um, sometimes people choose to make some assumptions about Bathsheba. As I read through this passage, I think it's unclear at best. I think we can't jump to those conclusions. If you look at verse number four, um, we see David sent messengers and took her as she came to him and he lay with her. In parentheses, watch this. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And so Bathsheba in this process, she's bathing herself because it's the time of the month that women were commanded to purify themselves based on Jewish law. And so she's following God. She's doing this thing that she is supposed to be doing according to the law. And as we notice, sometimes actually, as I was having a couple conversations with people this week about this topic, some people, and they remember from Sunday school or this or that, oh, wasn't Bathsheba up on the rooftop doing all of this for everyone to see? You know who was on the rooftop in this passage? One person was, David. We don't know where Bathsheba was that she was bathing, that she was cleansing herself. We don't have that information. And if I can throw out there, indoor plumbing, millennia later. And so oftentimes many are bathing themselves in courtyard, the privacy of their own home. But all of a sudden we have a man whose home is elevated above everyone else's, literally, who's out on his rooftop gazing at whatever there is to be seen. In addition to that, what the text does give us is there are a lot of verbs, a lot of actions that David takes. Just right here in the first few verses that we've already read, David arose, he saw, he inquired, he sent, he took. And so what we see is, in the, what does it say? It says, David lay with. And so as we look at all of this, I think the point of the passage is examining David's life and his actions and the sinful path that he allowed himself to go down. And so as we get into this text, I want to really, we're going to be focusing on David, on just how the, the fall of this mighty man, how he allowed sin to get a hold of him, and how he allowed sin to damage and destroy his own life and the lives of numerous people around him, even to the point of bringing near destruction to an entire kingdom. So as we look at David here, what do we see takes place? We see that he sends, he calls, he, he brings Bathsheba into himself. And then she returns to her house in verse number four. And then the woman conceived, she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Well, that's a problem now for David. See, David, apparently, this is going to be weeks later, obviously, for those who are familiar with biology, this is weeks later that she's going to figure out that she is pregnant. And so David now, for weeks, we don't see David showing any kind of remorse. We don't see David feeling bad about this or repenting of this or trying to, but now there's a problem because other people are going to find out. Isn't that how we tend to treat sin in our own lives? When we can get away with it, all right. But the moment someone else becomes aware, now it's an emergency. Can I tell you this? Your sin was a problem long before anyone else found out about it. 
Because there's one who knows and sees all things that we're doing, and he's the one who judges justly. And so now we find that David here is attempting, he's about to try to cover up this sin. Which as we learned from the fib, covering up our sin only leads to more sin. And so as David hears the three most exciting or terrifying words you've ever heard, I am pregnant, he begins to, he begins to repent, right? Now let's watch. Verse number six, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Who is Uriah? This is Bathsheba's husband. Send me Uriah the Hittite so that he can make it right with Uriah and repent and right? What do we see? Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, asked how Joab was doing. Hey, Uriah, how's Joab? Hey, how's the, how are the people on the front lines? How's the war going? In verse number seven. Then David said to Uriah after the small talk, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. And so David says, oh, Uriah, how's the battle going? Oh, Uriah, you know what, Uriah, man? I've just heard so many good things about how you've been fighting and battling on the front lines. You could use a break. Uriah, you could use a rest. Why don't you go home and, and wash your feet? And this, kind of is, this is like today. Be like, go home, take off your shoes, stay a while. Just relax for a minute. You've been fighting for days, weeks, months. Just take it easy. And so Uriah leaves the king's house. He was invited to leave. And so he leaves the king's house. But watch what he does. Verse number nine. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Wait a second. That's a problem for David. We see now David is not calling Uriah back to repent and to make things right. He's calling Uriah so that he can, hey, go spend some time with your wife. And then maybe no one will ever find out the things that I've done. But Uriah screws up, messes up, botches David's entire plan. Because Uriah says, what? <laughs> what? I can't go home. It's, it's, it's time for me to be with my brethren, my brothers in arms. I'm supposed to be there with them. And so where does Uriah go? He says, I'm just going to sleep at the king's door with the rest of his servants. It's not time for me to do this yet. Verse 10, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David, he calls Uriah back and he says, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah says to David, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths. This is tents. And my Lord Joab, the servants of my Lord, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So what does Uriah say? Uriah says, all of my fellow soldiers... They're on the front lines. They're eating rations. They're sleeping on the ground. Uh, they have no comfort. They're not being told to come home. I'm with them. Even if I'm here, king, I'm your servant. You tell me to do what you tell me to do. Can you just imagine David in this moment, how he ought to have been feeling? 
But do we see repentance from David? He's confronted with Uriah's righteousness. Uriah was not a Jewish individual by birth. He was a Hittite. But even his name here, it means specifically the light of God, the light of Yahweh. And so Uriah is some sort of Jewish convert. He believes in God and he believes in following after him. And so what is he doing? He's demonstrating his own righteousness in opposition to David, the king's wickedness. And so David now says, Uriah, you need to go home. Didn't you go on this journey? And Uriah says, no, that's not right. I can't do that. And so watch in verse number 12, David says, okay, I'm going to try something else. David said to Uriah, remain here today also. And tomorrow I'll send you back. And so he says, stay another night, stay another night. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And so now we have drunk Uriah. And David says, oh, well, you know what? Uriah wouldn't do this when he was sober. Maybe we can get him intoxicated and that's how I can get him to go home and sleep with his wife. He'll go home and even pass out on the couch for all I care, as long as we have some sort of justification. And so he gets him wasted and says, all right, get on out of here. Using this to manipulate his brother, right? How inappropriate is this? But the amazing thing is, in all of this, is that now we have a drunk Uriah with greater morals than a sober David. Because what does Uriah do? In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even when he was wasted, Uriah wouldn't go out and violate what he had said he was going to do. And so now David has a real problem on his hands. I can't get Uriah to step through the door of his own house. Short of forcing him into this space, there's nothing left for David to do. All of these opportunities, David has had moments to repent, hasn't he? And watch what he does next in verse 14. Understand this. Sin does not de-escalate itself. Sin escalates. It grows. It consumes. It moves forward. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. This is the commander on the front lines. And sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So he writes this letter, seals it and hands it to Uriah and says, take this to your commander. Think about that. David understands the integrity of Uriah enough to know that he will carry his own execution order to the front lines. How despicable is David behaving? How nauseating is it to to understand what David is doing in this moment? And so he sends Uriah. Uriah goes... And verse number 16, as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out, fought with Joab. Some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. 
And so now we see Uriah's finally killed in this battle. Not only Uriah, if you pay attention here, some of the servants of David among the people fell. And so Uriah and other men are now dead because of David's sin. And so now we have all of this taking place. We have Uriah being killed. We find a messenger comes and tells David all of these things in verses 22 through 25. In verse 26, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah was dead. She lamented over her husband. What this would look like often biblically in these times was that um, someone in mourning would shave their head and they would wear um, different clothes and they would go through this mourning procedure. And then when the hair grew back, when they were able to change into their nicer clothes, once again, the season of mourning was over. And so Bathsheba takes this time to mourn for her husband, Uriah. And verse 27, when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And so now we have had 27 verses that we have watched David just botch everything that God had given to him for years. We watched the faithfulness being put on the shelf. We watched the abundant gifts being placed in front of him, consumed for his own purposes. And now what we see is we see David has finally hit the mark where he has covered up for his sin. No one else knows. There's no evidence against him. He has now protected himself. So he thought. In the first chapter of this story, you know who is conspicuously absent? There's one name that has not been mentioned at all in the text. And we find it in the last sentence of the chapter. In fact, the very last word in my copy of the Scriptures. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oh yeah, David forgot about someone. And all of these times, he's living his life in such a way as to say, what does David want? Maybe even at times he tried to justify the behavior and say, well, if the kingdom finds out, we'll have a scandal on our hands, so we have to sacrifice Uriah for the good of the kingdom. He could have justified this in so many ways, but in all of this, who did David never once consult? God. You remember, if you remember David, if you've been with us through this study over and over and over again, what was David's theme for the first 25 years that he's in the public spotlight? God said, God did, God is moving. This honors God. This pleases him. This is for the Lord. This is over and over and over again. This thing that is good in the sight of God. And then now as he has reached his goals and accomplished what God had set before him, now he says, you know what? It doesn't matter what God thinks anymore. And David thought that no one that mattered knew, but God knew. And what does God do in response to this knowledge? Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David 
He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought, excuse me. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so Nathan comes to David, begins to tell this story. And by the way, fascinating thing, you're going to circle back around in a minute. Nathan's name means gift. And so God sends the gift of a prophet to David. And he tells this story of two men. He says, hey, king, um, I got to tell you about this thing that happened. Rich man, poor man. The rich man has all these flocks and herds and just sheep galore. This poor man had one lamb. This lamb, in fact, was more like a pet than property. I mean, he's eating this lamb. She's eating from the table. She's drinking from the cups. How some of you guys are with your pets. No judgment. This guy was not a dog or cat dad. It was a sheep dad. But the rich man comes in and says, no, I don't want one of my sheep. I want that one. Takes it and consumes this lamb that belonged to this man. Watch David's response. Watch David's response. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David's words. (laughs) And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so David is just irate. And remember, this this is happening. This is now months removed from David's sin. So David's holding on to it very close, obviously. Nathan says to David, one of the greatest lines just in Scripture, watch this. You are the man. David pronounces this harsh judgment and he points the finger at David and says, you are the man. And what's really incredible is the consequences of David's actions that would come are the things that he had issued to this hypothetical rich man. Nathan says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you over king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives. Notice that David didn't have a wife when he did this with Bathsheba. David had wives. Anyways, and what does he say? I'll Listen, verse number 11, he says, I will raise up evil out of your own house, give you your, take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I'm sorry, Nathan said, uh, David said to Nathan, verse 13, 
I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, finally, the words come out of David's mouth. Months later, I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to understand what we're seeing here. Remember David, how he treated Uriah when he came back from battle? He gave him food. He gave him drink. In fact, he sent gifts after him, the Scripture tells us. Why did David do all this for Uriah? David sent a gift to Uriah to bring ruin. But God sent a gift to David to bring repentance. Why did God send Nathan to David? Why did God send David to, Nathan to David? Merely to cast judgment? Merely to bring condemnation? Couldn't, have, couldn't God have condemned David without Nathan's help? Couldn't God have just said, okay, I'm done with this David guy. Yeah, I've got a, made a promise to his lineage, but I can wipe David out. Did God need Nathan's help? But yet God sent Nathan. And what's David's response when he is confronted by his sin? Finally, finally, David responds with repentance. And in fact, following this, we have one of the most beautiful Psalms in all of the scripture. Psalm 51, David writes this. He says, his prayer to God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Many believe that Psalm 51 was written after Nathan confronts David right here in 2 Samuel. And so this confrontation happens and he says, ah, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And I just have to imagine Uriah is kind of like, agree to disagree, whatever. But here's what we do see in the scripture. Your sin is always against God first. You hear me? Your sin is always against God first. So many times we look at maybe how someone else is impacted by something we've done, or we try to justify our actions by saying, well, nobody got hurt. Great. I'm glad for that. Sincerely. Every time that you sin, you know who it's against before it's against anyone else. It's against God. The one that created you, the one who laid down this law by which we can uh, obey and we can follow and serve and bring glory to him. The one who gave his only son, Jesus, to live the life that we could never live and to die a death that we deserve to die. And so we see David here begins to help us understand that our sin is always against God. And then it was also against Bathsheba, Uriah. Joab, who's now complicit in this, the other men who lost their lives in this battle, we see that this sin just continues and continues to affect those around David. But before we climb up on our pedestal and condemn David, I want you to remember what we might be able to call the dichotomy of humanity. That's this. You and I, all of us, we're capable of incredible good and immense evil. Before we judge David and climb up on our high horse, let's remember this. The same seed that led David to adultery and murder lives in you. We look at these things, I would never... Be careful. Be careful. 
Because the Bible tells us to be careful, those of you who think you stand, so that you don't fall. And when we begin to look at others and say, ah, we ought to be condemning, and listen, we ought to condemn this behavior, not condone it. Absolutely. But before we get high and mighty, let's remember that the sin that is inside of David is the same sin that you and I are born with. In fact, every human being that's ever lived is born within the same space except one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we look at this same sin, this David, what does he do? He takes, it begins as he takes Bathsheba. That same word take, it's got an interesting origin. Genesis chapter number three, a woman by the name of Eve took of the fruit that was forbidden for her. And then we see David take, but at the same time, we have to remember that, you know what you and I do? We take when it's not ours. Not merely thieving, and, but any time that we pursue something that is outside of what God has given to us. As we look at this story, I want you to understand clearly, this is not a story of condemnation. This is a story of repentance. Now, when we talk about repentance, repentance does not mean an erasure of any natural consequences. My kids like to, what I'll have is I'll have one kid who will he'll hit the other or throw something at one of the other, one of their siblings, and they'll go, I said I was sorry. Okay, yeah, great. It doesn't help the broken arm from when you shove them down the stairs. I'm glad there's repentance, but there's also consequence. But as we look and examine this story, Christians, I'm asking you to think about what repentance looks like in your life. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he said this, the Christian life is a life of repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. So Christian, when's the last time you repented? I'm not talking ask Jesus to save you over and over and over again. When's the last time that you said, God, there's a sin in my life that I have not addressed. I have not uprooted. I've behaved in a way that goes against you and what you have called me to do. God, forgive me. Because the Christian life is marked by this. Our own growth and maturity depends on repentance. Luther also said it this way. He said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. So brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we begin to talk about the sin in our lives, I have to imagine there are a number of us that there are some specific things that come to our minds. The question today is not how sinful and what. It's will you repent of these sins. Because today, even as I'm standing before you and we're opening up the scripture, I believe I can say this very, very strongly and confidently. Jesus is calling you to repent. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse number 15, one of the first words of Jesus in all of the scripture, he says, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, repent is this theological word. It simply means this, to change your direction. I was going one way, now I'm going another. 
As we talk about the Christian life being a life of repentance, it's how our Christian life begins. You see, all of us were born into sin, but Jesus came, lived a perfect life so that we can put our faith in him. Well, you're not good enough to get to God on your own. You could never be. We're all guilty and we're separated from God. And yet, when we repent and say, God, I'm not good enough, so I'm going to turn around and put my faith in your son, Jesus. That's the moment that the scripture calls being born again. That's the beginning of our spiritual walk. That's the beginning of following Jesus. It's how the Bible uses the term, it's how we are saved when we repent of that sin. So maybe you're sitting in here today and you've never repented of sin. That's a whole new concept for you. You've never said, Lord, save me because I can't save myself. Hey, today would be a wonderful day for you to repent and turn to Jesus and put your faith in him. As I look around this room, I know many of you have a testimony that you have repented of this unbelief and turned to Jesus. But even though your salvation is secure, our growth and our maturity in Christ also depends on continued repentance. Because the moment that we're saved, we don't just magically become these people that always only ever do the right things. But instead, what we find is that the Christian life is marked by when God calls and works and moves in your heart, brings conviction of sin. We don't say, oh God, I, I think I'm doing pretty good. We say, yes, Lord, I will turn away. So Christians, I don't know what sins you're battling with. I don't know what attitudes, what desires. I don't know how you are doing on these fronts. But even as we open up the word of God today, God brings the conviction where he ought to. And so today, as we enter into a time of invitation, I want to extend to you an opportunity to repent. Maybe it's to repent and believe in Jesus, to be saved, be born again. Maybe, Christian, it's this habit that you've allowed to take root in your life, this attitude that has just overtaken you and corrupted and tainted the way that you go about doing your everyday things. And it's time to say, God, I repent, to lay it down, to turn away from these sins this morning.